This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. One of the reasons I chose this topic of these six reflections is because it's part of a suite of reflections and um, meditation practices that the Buddha offered to help us to come back to what's wholesome, what's wholesome in the sense that's um, giving a distinction, making a distinction between what's providing worldly pleasure and what provides unworldly pleasure or unworldly happiness. And that distinction, in case it's not completely clear, is like the difference between buying a Tesla and having really, really exquisite deep meditation. You get it? Nothing wrong with Teslas, by the way. I think they're great. <laughs> However, it's like there's, there's a happiness that comes with the things that happen in the world that go the way we want. Um, the things that we might acquire or the ways in which we're gratified in various dimensions. And then there's a happiness that comes from giving without any attachment in it that comes from virtuous behavior and knowing we're doing what's really upright and good. Like today we went in and talked to the city of Sunnyvale, which is where we want to rent this particular commercial property about getting a permit. This kind of stuff always scares me because I think (laughs) government agencies are so... (laughs) And it was, you know, it was was lovely and um, we do need a permit and it's fine, and it's like you walk out of there thinking, yeah, it's, it's wonderful to feel completely clean in what we do, not try to fudge it. It's wonderful to know that today we did our best to not kill any living beings. Today we did our best to not lie or say things that weren't really true. Today we did our best to not take anything that wasn't really intended for us or to use our sexual energy in a way that might be a little, you know, of an imposition or harmful. And leaving alone any substances that might cause us to be unmindful. And you know, it's more than that, isn't it? When you really pick up the, the path and you really look at virtue and what it's like to be uju. That's a, uju is a poly word for straight, upright. To really feel that in ourselves, that the heart, the mind 
our intentions, they become more and more purified. And then the Buddha, what he wanted us to do is to really pay attention to that and notice how it feels. How it feels to not, not tell that white lie, even though it feels like you dodged some difficulty because of it. Notice how it feels to really give something that's a little bit hard to give. And, and then also uh, the Buddha wanted us to reflect on our generosity in the same way, you know, so that we could really, really know how it feels to have the joy of giving something valuable to us, to someone else. And that the feeling is really important that when we start to tune in on the subtler levels of the distinctions between that feeling of generosity, that feeling of uprightness, of uju, that feeling of um, tuning into and really appreciating the Buddha, the Dhamma, the enlightened Sangha, and feeling a certain level of humility in awe of that. And how, that, how these feelings that, um, you know, how that comes up when you really help someone in need, you know, and how different that is from the feelings of winning, getting something for ourselves. And it doesn't mean we never should win or get something for ourselves, but we need to know the difference and put our energy and our attention more and more in the camp of this kind of wholesome, uplifting, purifying happiness. And then that, f- that final reflection that in this set of six of recollecting the devas. There are a lot of people in our culture, in our, in our Buddhist um, circles, that have some challenges around rebirth and maybe the existence of such beings. And of course, the Buddha didn't require us to take anything on blind faith. And yet having an openness of mind um, is pretty important when we start to develop faith or trust. Confidence might be a better word. In the Buddha's wisdom and in his experience, which comes not through blind faith and just, okay, you tell me this is the way it is and I believe it, but through seeing for ourselves that so much of what the Buddha taught is actually how it works. And then for the things we haven't seen yet for ourselves to keep an open mind and have a provisional acceptance. Because the Buddha was reporting his direct experience. He wasn't teaching a theory or a philosophy. It was what he saw and experienced for himself And if we get the feeling that, yeah, he was right about so many things, maybe 
this report of his experience, it's clearly what he experienced. Now how can I become more familiar with that myself? So the, the final way of being able to really get the Dhamma, which includes rebirth, is to experience it directly. So the Buddha said, in the end, and the end, where's the end? I think it's full awakening. Because then everything's peaceful. There's no searching anymore. There's no uh, agitation. There's no wobble. It's full, full-fledged peace and tranquility. The highest happiness, the Buddha said. So in the end we will have experienced all this ourselves. So how do we do that? How do we start? First, it has to be with an open mind. And then the practice of the Noble Eightfold Path. We make ourselves insight-prone. And this idea of reflecting on the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, your virtue, your generosity, and the devas, and how your qualities, so how you have qualities that are like the qualities of the angels, of the devas. And when we see that, then we can really um, bring some attention and energy to cultivating those qualities further. And the feeling that comes with it is something that helps us to be stable and happy no matter how many iterations of worldly winds are rushing by. There's a, there's a solid ground to come back to. So when the praise comes... You stand on this solid ground. You're not so elated. You're not so excited. You know what's next. <laughs> There's blame. I had a day one time when someone told me that I was the most selfish person they had ever met. And they went on a little bit about what they based that on. And I swear, two hours later, someone told me that they felt I was the most giving person, just that <laughs> was like, well, <laughs> what, you know? And so, so it, how can we continually come back to solid ground, to uh, where the mind is elevated and allows all these currents of change to come through without knocking us down. And this kind of reflection, I just wanted to give you this way of meditating tonight as one option for how to develop that, that ability, that space that you can come back to. For how many of you have never heard of these six reflections as a collection before? Okay. So, and the rest of you, have you ever meditated with these reflections? 
even though you knew about them. How many people have meditated with them before? Okay, a few of you. A few old hands here. That's old in the best of sense. Trust me. (laughs) So I want you to think of it as an option and use it from time to time. And use it even when, or maybe uh, use it Use it when things are going smoothly so that you can get the hang of it and see what it is that comes up. What do you think? What does it feel like? What, what questions arise? What is interesting? What is, what is um, nourishing? What is enriching in it? And then, you know, like taking some time with these And then when you come to a point where things are a bit on the rough side, see what it's like to turn towards these recollections. So there's a, a, in the chapter um, of ones in the Anguttara Nikaya, so this is the numerical discourses, there's a section where the Buddha says there's one thing that when developed and cultivated leads exclusively to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. And what is that one thing? Recollection of the Buddha. And then he goes on to say in subsequent verses the same thing about recollection of the Dhamma. So it's not meant to be there's only one thing. It's like, here's one thing that's going to lead directly to Nibbana. And many of you, if you're familiar with the suttas, then you know that this sequence of things, disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, peace, direct knowledge, enlightenment, Nibbana, some parts of that may be really familiar sequence. And it's a It's a process. You are also a process. I'm a process. When we tune our process into this kind of development, peace is what we come to. The process begins to go still. So, turning the the Dhamma, the Sangha, virtuous behavior, generosity, and the devas. And in this case, he adds a few other things that you might already be familiar with. He adds, again, it's the same text. When developed and cultivated, this leads exclusively to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. And it's mindfulness of breathing, which is my favorite by the way. And then he says the same thing about mindfulness of death. And mindfulness directed towards the body. And finally, the recollection of peace. So you can see the the Buddha was all about method. And he had... He gave us so many different avenues of approach that lead to the same result. And what that means is not that we jump from one thing to another, but that we 
We work with them to become skilled, like you become skilled with all the tools in your toolbox. If you want to build a house, you've got to use a bunch of them. So in our case, we're dismantling the house. <laughs> you still have to have a lot of tools. <laughs> and to know how they work and to be able to come to them when we need them is such a valuable skill. So I really recommend these. And whenever we come to a place like, okay, what does it mean to recollect peace? What comes up? What's that like? Could you do that for half an hour? How would that leave your mind? The point of all of these, well, especially those first six, you can get into a little a little more challenging area when you're reflecting on death, perhaps, or the body, the unbeautiful aspects of the body. We'll talk about, I'll talk about that in a minute. But in general, these, especially those six we talked about, they lead to wholesome states. There's no, there's no uh, downside, you might say. Okay, the truth is, as a teacher, I think... I've come to the conclusion that we can pervert anything. (laughs) Any practice, we can take it off off the um, proper path. So we have to watch out for those tricks of the mind because defilements are very tricky and insidious. But in general, if we're following the directions, (laughs) then it's, it's completely wholesome. And the other nice thing about it is it doesn't cost anything. How do you pull yourself up by the bootstraps of these reflections or these recollections if you didn't, if you didn't know before? Okay, so whatever we feel like, if we feel, as someone said to me once, I don't know what you're talking about about moments of the mind being at peace. And we could have the same thing with uh, not being familiar with any of the other points. So what do we do? Well, read the Dhamma and listen to people who have had these experiences and ask them about them and look for ways to experience them ourselves even little ways, even, even small examples. I find that when I want to understand something like this, and the Buddha was right, these things are hard to see, that we look for, the, look for any kind of example you can find in your experience that seems to go in that direction or approximate this and start to investigate it and start to put some attention in there and start to... See if you can build on it. And if there's really no clue, talk to someone who's, ha- who's got more experience and practice with them. It's like practicing together. There's a chance you're going to get, you know, some contact high. <laughs> you know? It's like, you know, and, and just, just really work with it in any way that you can. And it takes a certain amount of Willingness to accept that there's something there worth working on. 
And so also look for that. What gives us the encouragement? What gives us the, the desire to practice? And a lot of times it's just raw suffering. And we're sick of it. So that's what I would say. It's not, it's not like there's a handy one-size-fits-all answer. But we have to be willing to investigate and find out what works and really, really look at what the results are for you in any particular situation and then see where you can take that into more peaceful, more wholesome, more positive territory. Okay, so I, I would say, so the question, in case you couldn't hear, was about what seems to be two very different ways of meditating that we are taught in our uh, current Buddhist uh, contexts and Buddhist uh, groups. One is this uh, movement towards samadhi, which is a calmness and a, and a singleness of mind. And the other one is more like, oh, being aware of everything that's happening around us and really noticing the sights, sounds, and all that, and, and just being very present in the moment. It just seems like two very different things. So the way I would address this, first of all, I have to give a disclaimer. Because I'm, oh, what does Steve call us? Orthodox Buddhist. <laughs> I'm an early Buddhist. I'm, uh, I love the original, and I do have trust that it's the original teachings of the Buddha. And so I look back to the Nikayas for the descriptions, and I don't see the Buddha recommending this focus on the sound and focus on the light and whatever all these things going through. I don't see that as one of the tools. What I see when he teaches about mindfulness is mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of our feelings, mindfulness of our mind and mindfulness of the Dhamma, the Dhamma principles. And I come back to that. Now, within that, either whether you look at the Satipatthana Sutta, which is about those four aspects or foundations, or you look at the Anapanasati, which is mindfulness of in and out breathing, you'll see the same kind of sequence And what you'll find if you deeply practice that is that it can lead either to, it's about mindfulness, but you're mindful of something. And you're you're using that as a vehicle for deepening concentration. So you can, in that sequence of things or that collection of practices, go off into very refined states of consciousness. Or you can... uh, branch off into the four Brahma-viharas, the um, metta, loving-kindness, which is unconditional love, by the way, unconditional love, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. These are also four meditations that are completely wholesome and uplifting to the heart. Just like these reflections, these recollections that I've been talking about tonight. So what that says is that this, this idea that there's um, mindfulness is one thing and, and concentration is another thing isn't quite accurate. They come together. 
And the more we practice, the more we see these different tools, we pick up these different tools and we use them, the more we see that the results culminate. And in fact, you'll see, you know, as, as beings awaken, they see that this Noble Eightfold Path becomes one thing, that these practices become one thing. And we have to be a little bit careful about mindfulness running around. That it's not always what the Buddha really taught. And, you know, I remember someone, Ajampasano, how many people don't have any idea who I'm talking about? A few. Okay, he's a very experienced monk who's abbot, or was the abbot at a Bayagiri monastery in North Fear. He's at our place. Someone asked him about you know, kind of an open awareness, mindfulness, observing everything coming through. And he said, what do you think of that? And Ajahn Pasano said, it's a nice idea. <laughs> so I think it is possible to, as one um, very advanced monk in Thailand who was a, a disciple of Ajahn Mahabua, Ajahn Panyawaro, he, t- he said, you can bring your mindfulness to um, like the junction where all the sense data comes in instead of being out here on the ends, end points, on the nodes. Your, your mindfulness is right at the mind. But it doesn't mean that we've got the sense doors open taking it all in. But it's, it's really very much an ability to be mindful and aware of everything arising and ceasing. So there are some maybe subtle distinctions between that and some of the things that are being taught. Um, so it's like really notice what you experience and how it feels. Okay, so this question is about a process of working with the mental states that arise and um, working through them versus, maybe versus is the right thing, the idea of um, cultiv- you know, intentionally cultivating some state. Like I was saying, you always have this to come back to, this way of recollecting what's pure and wholesome and useful, good. So how is that work together or what is the difference? And um, you started with talking about how the recollection of the Buddha brought up thoughts of, you know, how me, this one reflecting on the greatness of the Buddha and the purity of the Buddha is not so pure. And this is, this is a way that the mind takes this, kind of hijacks, the ego kind of hijacks the practice. So many of us come to Buddhism with a Judeo-Christian overlay. And we have the feeling that it's 
not healthy or not right to focus on our goodness. And we immediately see all the flaws and we put our attention on that. And the suggestion here was that, well, there seemed to be some progress in seeing the flaws because you can kind of like look at them and work through them. And I think we have to just start to be discerning around what the mind is up to. For one thing, we can observe that whatever we put our attention on gets bigger. Another thing that we can observe is how I look at my own defilements makes a big difference. If I'm coming to it from a place of self and how I'm bad, it's harmful. If I come to it from a place of just looking at what's wholesome and what's unwholesome in a bit more of an objective way, and the the Buddha laid out the wholesome and the unwholesome very clearly. He said that, you know, breaking those precepts is unwholesome, keeping them is wholesome. Actually, he talks about ten things. He uses the first four precepts, first of all. Don't kill, don't lie, don't steal. Whoops, don't kill, don't steal, no sexual misconduct, and don't lie. And then don't use malicious speech, don't use harsh speech, and don't use frivolous speech. And then... Avoid longing, so desire, but longing, strong desire, hatred or aversion, and wrong view. Those are the unwholesome, and the opposites are the wholesome ones. So we can look at, you know, what is in, in this process, if we think of it as a process instead of a self, this ego self, If we look at things from that perspective, we're usually, it's pretty distorted. So if we look at it from what's, what's wholesome and unwholesome that's arising in the mind, and how can I purify it? How can I not be thinking about this in terms of me and mine, but just as how do I purify this process? And if we, if we feel like we have to go looking for defilements, I don't think we ever come to an end. It's like someone said, your karmic storehouse is so vast, we're not going to re- resolve it by pulling the stuff out of there necessarily. But we observe what arises, and then we learn how to turn it. And it doesn't, it's, this is not spiritual bypassing. We have to turn towards the suffering. But our suffering is the key. It's the guide. It's the red flag. It's this, come look at me. And when we look at it, and we learn how to be present with it in a way that allows it to unravel itself, then we can really experience the diffusion and the disintegration of it. And the next time it arises out of that endless well of yuck, it doesn't have as much impact on us. And 
it dissolves usually a little bit more easily. And this is a process. And the more we can, so cultivating states that are wholesome in the mind leads us upwards. And then when unwholesome things arise, we've got more oomph to take care of it. I hope that answered your question. I think so, but I'm working on it. (laughs) We all are working on it. There'll be a point, though, when we've really got it. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, how do you recover? Well, first of all, I love the Dhamma because there's a way to recover from absolutely everything. And the way you recover is you acknowledge what you did and you forgive yourself and you learn from it. You make the determination not to do it anymore. And as one of our teachers in Thailand says, we've all done stuff. And he said, after you've done that reflection, it's like, I see, I see that I did something here. Maybe we can understand a little bit about what led to that so we know like how to catch it earlier next time. Of course, we can... like." do what we can to make, up, make it up to the people that have been hurt. It can't always do it, and that's okay. The main thing is we learn, and we move on, and we don't do it again. We make a determination to not do it again. And then what if we do do it again? Okay, there's a habit there that needs to be excavated and opened and really worked with. And to not beat ourselves up over it. The Buddha talked about this kind of um, being overly regretful as a hindrance. It's It's toxic. Buddhism is not the kind of, um, it's not just about Buddhism as a religion. It's about the way the Dhamma works. It doesn't help us to feel like we're dirt. It doesn't help us to feel, I mean, it's not helpful to come from an ego position, whether it's higher or lower or the same. But to look, okay, there's this process. It's got all these inputs from all these past lives, all this habit energy. I mean, I don't know how many of you have had the chance to see a newborn child and get to know within the first couple of days where their interests are. It's possible. <laughs> They're all different. They've all got this long history and then we have the opportunity to make changes and and guide this process to a place that becomes more and more happy so as monastics we have a very nice strong container for life and as Ajahn Sumedho who you also may not know but he's been a monk for like 
gosh, I don't know how many decades. And um, he said once when I was living at Amravati and he was the abbot there, he said that, you know, in the 40 years or whatever he'd been a monk, he hadn't really done much of anything wrong. Because you've got all these rules you're following. You've got this really strong container of virtue. And so as a layperson, you adopt those five precepts and you keep them. And over the next days and weeks and months and years, then you start to notice that you're virtuous. And you can be happy about that. And it doesn't mean there's never a mistake, but you recover by acknowledging, forgiving, and learning. And use a lot of kindness. I think we're done. And I want to thank you for being so attentive. And I want to thank you for being here and practicing. And I want to wish you every good fortune on your path to full awakening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.